Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, would you uh, pray with me? God, thank you that though we are unworthy, that you sent your son who is infinitely worthy to take our place, to, to buy our pardon, to purchase us back from the slave market of sin and to deliver us, God, to, to call us out of slavery and into freedom, freedom that comes through the gospel, freedom not to do what our flesh desires, but to, to obey, uh, to choose to honor and glorify you. And God, a, a significant part of what it looks like to follow after this worthy son is being revealed to us in the book of Acts. Lord, as you unveil what it looks like to be a local church and to, to lean into life together, worshiping and giving and evangelizing and God, we thank you for what we've been learning uh, in Acts, and we pray uh, by way of your Holy Spirit's presence in this room, God, that you would let the words that I speak not fall on deaf ears, but fall upon eager hearts. Lord, that you would shape us, conform us more into the image of Christ in the hearing of your word today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts, the book of Acts chapter 11 starting in verse 19, is where we'll be today as I share with you a message I'm calling A Church is Born in Antioch. A Church is Born in Antioch. A couple of weeks ago, uh, last week was Mother's Day, and I uh, shared a a challenge to our church out of Exodus chapter 1, and if you were not able to be here, uh, I don't normally encourage people to go back and listen to a message, but I'd encourage you to go listen to that one if you're a part of North Roanoke and if, if this is your home because it, it will really help you step into um, some of my thinking about our responsibility to the next generation. There's going to be more conversation about that in the days to come. But back in Acts, um, what we've seen is that the Jerusalem church in the first half of chapter 11 is processing this reality, this truth that Gentiles do not have to become cultural Jews to surrender to Israel's king. They can come to Jesus without becoming Jewish in their culture. They don't have to get cleaned up to get to Jesus. They just need to get to Jesus who cleans us up, which is a great reality, is it not? And better than just cleaning us up, Jesus actually makes us new. Uh, He is coming and he is preparing ultimately at his return a new creation and he is fitting us by changing our hearts through this process of conversion we repent and believe in the gospel he makes us new on the inside and he does that not just for Jews but for Gentiles but but to this point we've only read about one special case right we've read about Cornelius and Peter and they both had to have visions so so maybe maybe God saves Gentiles under special circumstances only. Wrong. And we're going to learn that today because we're going to go from sort of the theoretical consideration that God might save some Gentiles under special circumstances to the truth that God's saving of Gentiles is supposed to be 
regular in the life of the church. It's supposed to be normative in the life of the church. And we're going to see that by the text we read today, by what we see happening in the city of Antioch. Now, in the Bible, there are two Antiochs. There's, there's a, an Antioch in Syria, which is the Antioch we're talking about today. Syrian Antioch was a significant and sizable city at the time of the Roman Empire with a mix of nationalities and religions. As Marita writes, Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, behind Rome and Alexandria, with about a half million people at the time. It was cosmopolitan and commercial. It was the capital city of Syria, and it was also a base for the Roman military. So many nationalities, many religions, an intersection of commerce and culture. It was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So more than a hop, skip, and a jump, 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. Stott says this, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as a venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. And what we're going to see later in Acts is this is exactly what happens. Antioch becomes this major mission-sending church, this major hub of worldwide mission, sending out Paul and Barnabas and later Paul and Silas to preach the gospel in new places to new peoples. So here's the question that I want to frame our consideration of the text this morning. What ingredients are present in the founding of a kingdom-advancing church? church. Because I submit to you, we want to be like Antioch. We want to be a church that's getting the gospel out to the nations. What ingredients are fundamental or foundational in a kingdom advancing church? And are we applying ourselves to those fundamentals? Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Verse 19 through verse 30 of chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I want to share with you three things that I I believe we see in this text about what it is, what what is required to be a healthy 
missional church of God, which, which I believe God wants us to be. Would you agree with that? All right, well, the first thing, and thank you for agreeing with that, by the way. If not, I probably need to, need to go, but uh, I'm glad you do. Um, the, the, first, the first thing I want you to see in verse 19 through 21 is this. We must prioritize sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen. We should prioritize sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen. And, and if you've been here throughout the series in Acts, you're probably thinking at this point, I think you already preached basically that point twice already. You are correct. And what do you think the repetition of this theme in Acts is trying to tell us? That we should prioritize sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen, right? Uh, in our text today, we see the church expanding, spreading into Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch through the testimony of everyday believers. They're, they're persecuted in Jerusalem, they leave, and we don't get their name. We're not told. They, like in the past, we, we got the name Philip, we got the name Saul. We, we don't even know who these people are. And I'm here to submit to you that this is how the church typically grows, not through people who make a name for themselves or who get named in the text. It's just through everyday Christians sharing their experience about Jesus. We only know that they were believers who had been scattered by the persecution. That's all we get, by the persecution that came at the hands of Saul after the stoning of Stephen that we read about back in chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Now, remember... Those who had been scattered from Jerusalem were ethnically Jews. And as they scattered, who'd they speak the word to? Who'd they speak the gospel to? They spoke the gospel only to Jews. Now, this is not saying that they were intentionally avoiding speaking the Gentiles. It's rather that they just shared the gospel in their natural realm of influence. Where, where did the Jews go? They went to go to extended family. They went to go find businesses where they would be received, where they could replant their lives. And so that's where they shared the gospel. They shared the gospel where they naturally went. And as they spoke the word, what happened? God's word did its work. New churches are born. When new people in new places are born again, churches, uh, we talk about church planting and there's a, there's a bit of truth to that because believers have to go with the gospel, but it's really more church birthing than church planting that we see in the New Testament. Some believers go, they share the gospel, a lot of people get converted, and boom, a church is born. And they're born, again, in the right preaching of the word of the gospel. There is no true church, church, where the gospel is not rightly proclaimed. There are pulpits this morning and pews and chairs this morning and other places where the gospel is not known or proclaimed and if the gospel is not known or proclaimed there it doesn't matter how many people show up it's not a church there is no true church where the gospel is not rightly proclaimed but where the word is proclaimed great things happen as we see here Peterson writes by simply speaking the word they founded churches where they had not existed before in Luke Acts have you noticed he treats the word almost like a character in the story, almost like it's a, it's a person. It, it, it does things. The, the Word moves people. It, God uses it to, to change things. There's nothing of lasting consequence that will happen in your life or in the life of our church without the Word of God. To be saved is to be forever altered by God in the hearing of God's Word. 
in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work life, the Word of God has things to say that speak directly into the dilemma that you are facing. And it is in obedience to the Word that our hearts are changed and we are sanctified and we find joy in becoming more like the Savior we anticipate receiving when He comes. As Powell writes, the Word is the powerful force that is able to conquer the world. In our day, church, I'm concerned that we too easily forget the Word and our responsibility to share it. Everyday believers, it's easier for us to focus on all the other good things that a church can do to penetrate a community. And I do mean good things, right? It's important to have a good website. It's nice to have a good facility that is navigable and accessible and secure and makes sense. And we're going to be talking about those things in just a few weeks here at North Roanoke. It's nice to have great programs. It's nice to have a good live stream connection with color that you can see. It's nice to have a decent tagline that you can throw on the back of a t-shirt. But we can do all those things and miss the main thing. And the main thing is what? The Word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how How that happens is not just through preachers on Sunday standing behind a pulpit telling you the gospel. It's like these believers. We don't even know their names scattered to new places and new people. Everyday believers sharing about an extraordinary Savior with everyone we encounter. Let me say that again. How is North Roanoke going to grow? How is North Roanoke going to be the church that God wants us to be in the next decade, in the next two decades? It's not going to be because you have an amazing pastor. It's not going to be because you have an amazing praise team. It's not going to be because you have an amazing 3D group leader. And, And all of those things might be true except for the first one. But The way North Roanoke is going to be what God wants us to be, fundamentally, foundationally, first and foremost, is everyday believers. That's y'all. Everyday believers sharing about an extraordinary Savior with everyone we encounter. You should have a mental list constantly in your mind of people that God is intersecting your life with that... You know them, and I don't, and Paul doesn't, and Lynn doesn't, but you do. Why? Because God wants you to give them the gospel. But in Antioch, we see something extraordinary, something super special, something that I like to call gospel intentionality. In the first two cities listed, these Jewish believers share the gospel with Jews, Sort of where they naturally go. But in Antioch, some believers do more than share the gospel in their immediate natural circle of influence. They what did they do? They launched out of their comfort zones by preaching the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists. Now, this is an interesting term because it has different meaning in different contexts. Previously, Hellenists meant Jews who spoke Greek and had Greek culture, but here it means Greeks. It it means Gentiles. It means, so we have Hellenist Jews who have Greek culture going into a city where there are other people with Greek culture who are not Jewish. And they're speaking the gospel across ethnic lines and cultural barriers. They cross these barriers to get the gospel to Gentiles. And the result is, as Peterson notes, the first church that is made up of Jewish and Gentile believers together. No ethnic divide Just a local church with all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. 
To, to reach all kinds of people, North Roanoke, we must intentionally cross barriers to get the gospel to people who aren't like us. It requires intentionality. We can't be passive with the gospel. We must be active with it. Of course, we, we don't do this presumptively, right? Rather, we have to depend upon the Lord. Look at the beautiful words in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Praise God that the hand of the Lord was with them. This is a metaphor for the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. To be effective in our witness to the Lord, the Lord must work through our witness. And if we believe this, if we really believe it's going to take more than just sharing the gospel, what will we do? We will pray like lives are at stake. We will pay attention to our walk with Christ, endeavoring to be clean before Him, to live holy, chastened lives so that the power of God would be working in our witness as we share. We beg God to move and to save so that we too might see, do you see it in verse 21, a great number who believe turn to the Lord. My, my prayer for our church is that we would see a great number believe and turn to the Lord. This believing and repenting go together. If you really believe, you will turn to the Lord. You will turn away from self and selfishness and self-righteousness and self-worship and pride. And you will turn to delighting and glorying in the only one who is worthy of our worship. The Son who was given for our salvation. This is, this is amazing, this story that we're reading about. Do you, do you long for this in our city? I, I want Roanoke to be Antioch. I want to see scores of people coming to saving faith in Christ. This, this exponential growth in Antioch reminds us of the growth that we saw back in Jerusalem. Do you remember it? Jerusalem was like 120 believers, then there's Pentecost, and then boom, there's thousands of believers. Then a couple chapters more, there's thousands more believers. And what we're seeing is that the same God who saved people in Jerusalem is saving people in Antioch, even though they are not Jews. Massive growth. May, may God, here's my prayer from point one. May God make us a people who truly beg God for the salvation of lost souls. May we not just have a quick five minute quiet time and a one page devotion. May we spend our days craving the presence of God in our lives. And seeking opportunities to magnify Christ and share the gospel. May he help us delight in discomfort that helps display the glory of King Jesus. May he save a great number through the witness of everyday believers who willingly share the gospel with everyone who will listen. I, I, I beg you, church, that you would lean with me into this prayer that we would long to see people come to saving faith in Christ in our community no matter what background no matter what color of their skin no matter what culture that God would save people through our church family the next thing we see in this text about a, a healthy missional church a church the fundamentals that undergird a church that's going to be effective in extending the kingdom is is this and it's a it's a bit of a long sentence but I think it all hangs together. Verse 22 through 26. We must welcome accountability in doctrine and discipleship as a people distinguished by devotion to King Jesus. 
we need accountability in doctrine and in discipleship. And if we'll be held accountable in our doctrine and our discipleship, it will lead to us being a distinguished people, a distinctive people, marked off by and for Jesus Christ. You say, where's all that? I'm going to try to show you from these verses. At this point in the story, the geographic center of sound doctrine is in Jerusalem. Because the apostles are in Jerusalem and the church is committed to the apostles' teaching, right? They are learning Christ according to the Old Testament through the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles are there. So when the gospel gets to Antioch, what does the church do? They send Barnabas. This word send is an intentional word. It means to send in an official capacity, to send out as an emissary. In other words, Barnabas didn't wake up one morning and decide to take a trip of his own volition. The church is involved in this. He is sent out by the church. As a pastoral sidebar, we need to reclaim this idea in the New Testament church of 2022. You will search the Bible in vain for Lone Ranger Christians doing their own thing, their own ministry, their own way, launching out on their own agenda with separation from the local church. You will search in vain to find it. It's not there. Everything functions in accountability to and with authorization from a local church. In the New Testament, personal senses of calling are always tested and sorted out and refined and affirmed in one's local church. It could start with a personal feeling, but it eventually gets vetted by pastoral leadership and others around you who speak into your life and help craft and refine what it is that God has truly called you to do. Paul doesn't just decide to take a mission trip later. He is sent out by a church. Barnabas does not just decide to go to Antioch. He is sent out by the church. Pastors don't just wake up one morning and decide to become pastors because they think it's going to be an easy job and they're just going to work for 30 minutes on Sunday every week, which if they think that, they're sorely mistaken. But pastors, how are they called? Their gifting is recognized and affirmed and it's cultivated by other pastors. And it's affirmed by the church. Disciples are made in churches. The local church is God's gift to the believer. You can't be a disciple and neglect congregational worship. You can't be a disciple and not live in relationship with other believers in covenant accountability in a church. The church is the place and the people that God uses to cultivate and refine and clarify his call upon our lives for service in the church, for the good of the church, for the glory of God. Lone Ranger Christianity needs to die. That was just for free. A little sidebar. This, this idea of a personal relationship with Christ is accurate. But it's not a private relationship with Christ that doesn't bump into other lives that help hold you accountable and encourage you. That is the goal of a church. And in this case, the Jerusalem church knew that Barnabas the encourager was just the right guy to send to Antioch. To do one of two things, to either verify that the gospel had really gotten there or to help them get the gospel right if there were still some questions. The church had recognized that a right understanding of the gospel is essential for the church to exist, that doctrine matters. 
So when Barnabas arrives, we read in verse 23. Look, look at verse 23. I love verse 23. He saw the grace of God. We can't see the grace of God. Right? I mean, it's an abstract theological reality, and yet it says right here in the text that he saw the grace of God. And while God's grace is not something our physical eyes can, can see in one sense, in another sense, we do see the grace of God. How? In the lives of people who have been transformed in the hearing of the gospel. He sees new people in front of him rejoicing and delighting in Jesus, delighting in the wondrous truth that God sent his son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And when he sees this grace flowing from this changed people, what does it say in verse 23? He was glad. The encourager was encouraged. What makes you glad? What really makes you glad? I submit to you in some churches, people don't get glad when new people show up and get changed by God because it means the church is going to be different. It means things are going to change. But if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, you should be gladdened when new people enter the kingdom of God. I submit to you there's nothing more exciting than that than to see the grace of God upon somebody's life, to see them go from death to life, from hell to heaven, from lost to saved. There's nothing greater than that. And what happens once Barnabas realizes the church has the gospel? He just, he's like, y'all are good. I'm going to check out and get back to Jerusalem. No, he stays. He stays to take them deeper. He stays to encourage them. This word exhort means to encourage or to comfort. It comes from the same word for the Holy Spirit who's called the paraclete. Parakletos. He's going to deepen their walk with Christ. He's going to deepen their understanding. He's going to encourage them what? To remain faithful. They are being faithful, but he is going to be used by God to keep them staying faithful. He encourages them to faithfulness in Christ. What does he not encourage them to? Notice that he does not encourage them to become just like the Jerusalem church. He doesn't come down to Antioch or up to Antioch 300 miles away and say, well, let me tell you what the songs we sing in our hymnal are. Well, y'all better sing all those songs. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you how they dress in Jerusalem. No. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you the size and the shape of the building or the houses that they worship in in Jerusalem. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, let me tell you about our customs. He just says, here's the gospel. You know the gospel. I want to exhort you and encourage you to faithfulness in the gospel for the glory of King Jesus. That's why the church spreads so rapidly early on. It's because they don't mess this up like the American missionaries did in the 1950s, thinking that when you take the church to Africa that they need to have a chapel and a steeple and everything just like they do in the United States. No, they don't. They need the Word of God. They need Jesus and community. That's it. Are you all understanding me this morning? Sometimes I get a little excited and feel like I might have left you behind. He encourages them to stay faithful to Jesus. Full stop. And in verse 24, we learn why he did this. He was a good man. We, we hear this at funerals often, right? He was a good man, she was a good lady. 
But the Bible defines for us what a good man is. A good man is not just somebody who does good deeds, good works, nice at the workplace. His, his goodness comes not from himself, but from what follows next. His, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Why was he good? Because God was at work in him. Because his trust was in Jesus Christ. Because he was looking not to his own merit, but to Jesus who gave him righteousness before a holy God. And the result of this encouragement to remain faithful is what? In verse 24. A great many people were added to the Lord. Even more people come to saving faith in Christ. I want to submit to you, church, that the Bible rejects the false dichotomy that is so often thrust upon pastors and ministries today. The Bible rejects the idea that we are either going to reach people or we are going to go deep into the things of God. You will search in vain to find that premise in the Bible. Well, I just want to reach people. I just want to do evangelism. I just want to have programs on the one hand. The other guy, I just want to go deep in the Word. I want to have 75 Bible studies a week, and I want to parse every verb and do everything just right. It's both and, not either or. The Bible shows us that Christian maturity and biblical growth go together. It is not enough to be a church that just reaches people and never does discipleship. People who are reached must be discipled. And by the way, those who are discipled, like we see in verse 24, will have a desire to reach more lost people. They go together. They're not at odds with one another. They're mutually reinforcing. So don't put that on your pastor or on your church. Well, you spend too much time in the Word, or we don't care enough about reaching people. At North Roanoke, we want to be in the Word and in the community, because if you're doing them right, they should reinforce one another. That's what happens in Antioch. And Barnabas, the growth of the church is so great that Barnabas needs help. So in verse 25, what does he do? He travels approximately 270 miles round trip to find Saul. Goes around the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, out of Syria, up into Turkey. Barnabas knows the man that he needs for this job, and he goes to get him. This is is the same Saul that Barnabas vouched for earlier, right? When he comes to Jerusalem, people are like, Saul was killing Christians last time we saw. And Barnabas is like, yeah, but he met Jesus. And he's got a commission to reach Gentiles, and there's a lot of Gentiles in Antioch. So Barnabas goes to get Saul, and they form what I'm going to call this morning a prototypical pastoral team. The, The idea of pastors overseeing and leading churches is a clear New Testament principle that is solidified later in texts like Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. It's affirmed in the pastoral epistles and statements like this from Titus 1.9 when Paul says that any man who serves as a pastor or an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Peter says the same thing in a different way. Shepherd the flock of God. Feed the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. The life and doctrine of those who teach is vital. It's of vital importance to the health of the church. Brothers and sisters, just because you found a resource in a Christian bookstore 
doesn't mean that I would recommend it. Just because you found a book published by a celebrity pastor doesn't mean that I would recommend it. It doesn't mean that it's theologically sound. God's design for sustaining and strengthening local churches is that they be led and overseen by a doctrinally sound pastoral team. This team will ideally, like Paul and Barnabas and Saul at this point, they will ideally have a deep soul connection, and through that trust, they will keep one another sharp, challenging each other as they lead the church and oversee her teaching. Barnabas the encourager knows that he needs Saul the hammer. Have y'all noticed Saul's a little bit of a hammer? If you've read his, his epistles. So Barnabas, is this naturally encouraging presence, realizes that he needs Paul or Saul to come in and be like, hey, thus says the Lord. Let's get on, let's, let's stay on track. So you've got Saul the hammer and Barnabas the encourager, and they help one another in their oversight of this fledgling church. Barnabas had helped Saul earlier, and he's familiar with Jesus' call upon Saul's life, so he humbles himself and he makes the trip and he finds Saul, verse 26. Again, that, that word in Greek is like Eureka. Woo, I found something. Found Saul, and he brings him into Antioch where they invest in the church for an entire year, and three things happen. They got the gospel right, they're doctrinally sound, they're, they're now being discipled by this pastoral team, and we see three things. First, they met with the church. This word meet is the word for hospitality. They hung out together. The pastors in the church hung out together. Interestingly, this is the first time in Acts that the word church is used, not of the church in Jerusalem and not of all believers everywhere, but of a different local church, namely the church in Antioch. This is an incredibly important theological principle that is inferred in this text. Why are we not Catholics? Why are we not Presbyterians? Because the Bible shows us that local churches are independent and autonomous entities. There's a church in Jerusalem that is helping with the start of the church, but Antioch becomes a local church. Not a part of the church, but a church that has all the resources of heaven right there on site. Does this make sense? So we don't need this, this mega national entity controlling. We need pastors who love one another, who know the gospel, who are committed to one another, who are sharpening and refining one another to be present among the people of this local church. It's biblical. It's right here. This is an independent, autonomous church. We'll see that even more in Acts 15 as the two churches at Jerusalem and Antioch talk to one another. So the believers are spending time together as a distinct community called out to follow Jesus together in Antioch. They're, they're together. They met. Secondly, they taught. There's a whole lot of discipleship going on. They got together and they didn't just hang out and talk about how lousy the Cowboys are going to be this year. They, they talked about other things like the gospel. And finally, it was here in Antioch that the disciples were first given the name Christians. Their devotion to meeting with one another and their devotion to God's word leads people to recognize that they are a distinct people marked off as people who are following the Christ, the Messiah, and they are given by the city the title 
Christians, meaning those of the Messiah or those habitually bearing the name of Christ. The growth of the church in size and maturity is so great that they're given a new name to match their new identity. Peterson says this, the community made such an impact that there was a need to identify them as a distinct group. The title Christians was needed. Excuse me, the title Christians recognizes that they are a new phenomenon comprising Jewish and Gentile believers in the Christ. How did this happen? Right doctrine, consistent discipleship led them to live in a distinctive way that was recognized by everybody. And I submit to you, in our world, we've got a bunch of Christians who are doing their best to look like the world rather than to look like Jesus. They're on Twitter and social media and everywhere else, and they're doing everything they can to say to the world, I'm just like you, whereas in the New Testament, what we see is the church saying, it's okay to be distinguished by my walk with Jesus. It's okay to have sound doctrine. It's okay to be discipled in the Word. It's okay if you want to call me a little Jesus, a little crazy Jesus follower. Call me whatever you want because I'm different and marked off from the world because I'm following the King of the universe who's coming again to save me. And redeem me and reconcile me. It's okay to be a Christian. To be all in as a Christ follower. The third thing we see in this text as we close is that we must have a kingdom mindset. We must have a kingdom mindset. In verse 27 through 30, we see this principle. In verse 27, we learn that in the days that Saul and Barnabas were leading the church, some prophets come down from Jerusalem. And we could spend a while on the topic of prophets in the New Testament, but I'm going to try and summarize it briefly this morning. First, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers, there is this sense in which all believers are to prophesy. All believers are to declare the truth of the gospel. However, there is a special sense in which some early in the New Testament are prophets. It is clear that there are some Christians, Peterson says, were especially gifted in prediction and others in exhorting and strengthening the believers in their discipleship. But this office, this office of prophet, like the office of apostle, seems to fade from the pages of the New Testament once churches receive elders and as the New Testament is completed. The pulpit commentary says it succinctly. Prophets were indispensable before the New Testament was given as the church's infallible guide to the will of God. But they were apparently not necessary after God's will was fully recorded in the New Testament. But for now, New Testament hasn't been written. Still very early in the life of the church. And there are prophets that come down from Jerusalem, and Agabus is one of them, and he stands up. Well, where did he stand up? Most likely at one of the gatherings that we just read about a few moments ago. He stands up in the gathering, and he predicts by the supernatural revelation of the Holy Spirit to him that a famine would occur, where? Throughout the known world. Incidentally, world history demonstrates that Agabus was exactly right. We read about this famine in world history. It affected the entire known world world. This prophecy from Agabus provides an opportunity for us to see that healthy missional churches don't just prioritize doctrine and discipleship, but also deeds and giving that display our gratitude for what we have received in Christ. Doctrine, discipleship, 
deeds. They all matter to our God. In the early Jerusalem church, we saw this mindset in their generosity to one another. You remember in Jerusalem what happened? They get saved and then they all start selling their property and they bring the money to the apostles' feet and they're like, you just give it to whoever has need. But here we see something slightly different. We see one congregation of Jews and Gentiles, ethnically different from the congregation at Jerusalem, sending money, sending resources to Jerusalem. So what we're seeing is that God's people have solidarity with one another that overrides their ethnic or cultural divisions. Peterson writes, an important sign of Christian maturity is generosity in giving to believers in need. Let me say that again. Are you a mature Christian? Well, Luke is telling us over and over again in Acts that an important sign of Christian maturity is generosity in giving to believers in need. We have a special responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in this family and even in the extended family of God. Paul in Galatians 6.10 says, we, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then listen to this and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? We, we want to just give to the community and bless the community and, and take care of every need that's out there. But what Jesus says is the first place that we need to meet needs is in the family of God. And that the world is going to be attracted like a moth to a flame that a family, because they've been changed on the inside, takes care of one another. The world is won in part by having the opportunity to see believers taking care of believers. So in verse 29, what happens? These disciples determine, certainly with the oversight and the guidance of Barnabas and Saul, to provide some help to the believers in Judea. And after deciding to do something, after the church made a decision that we're going to have a campaign, we're going to have an offering, they all gave the exact same percentage of their income. That's when you should say, wrong. Right, that's, that's not what happened. The church decided, we're going to take care of the problem. And then they said, and every single one of you is going to be a part of the solution as you and the Holy Spirit do business with one, with one another and figure out what He would have you to give. And look at this, verse 29, everyone gave. No one did not participate. The whole church gave according to his ability or as anyone had prospered. New Testament giving, lean into this church. I know it's, it's getting late, but lean in. New Testament giving starts with a church decision and then is pursued individually, not in unthinking obedience to a fixed and unchanging percentage, but freely and lavishly in obedience to the Holy Spirit and in consideration of the resources that God has given each believer. Paul captures this principle in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 when he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I submit to you, if your giving is set on autopilot on a percentage that you've never thought about in 20 or 30 years, you're just checking a box. You're not intersecting with the Holy Spirit about where you are and where he's calling you to. And I would encourage you in this 
discipline of giving to be communing with the Spirit regularly about what you have, what the needs of the church are, and what He would have you to give. And I submit to you, if we'll do that, and if every one of us will participate, then the needs that this church has related to facilities and everything else, if we'd have been doing that for the last 30 years, we wouldn't need to have a campaign for a facility. It had already been built. If we would all go all in to the extent that the Spirit of God leads us to do, we would already be fully funded. Does that make sense? May God loosen our grip on our things for the good of this church and the next generation that He's calling us to reach. In any event, the Spirit directed the individual giving and the church called for a campaign. And then they entrusted Barnabas and Saul with the proceeds of the offering to take it to the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Now this is the first time we see elders mentioned in Acts, but it won't be the last. We're going to see as we continue in this book that God's enduring design for churches is that they will be led by elder teams who oversee the material resources, the teaching, and the alignment of teaching and practice in local churches. But that's another sermon for another day. For today, I want you to see three things in this text. One, if we're going to be a healthy missional church, we need to share the gospel with anyone who will listen, no matter where they come from, no matter their background. Two, we've got to get the gospel right and be devoted to one another in discipleship that is accountable to pastoral oversight. And finally, we need to give. We need to give as the church determines, directed by the Spirit for the glory of Christ and the good of His people. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, help us to truly be Christ's church. God, we say we want to be Christ's church. We want to impact the valley and we want to reach the world. If we're going to be the church of Christ, we need to be a people speaking the gospel wherever we go. We need to be more than just Sunday morning attenders. We need to be discipled. We need to go deep into the things of God. We need to be distinguished by our love and devotion for Christ. And God, we need to be givers. We can never, ever, ever outgive God. God, I pray that you would help us in these areas and that Christ would be magnified as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.